1: welcome back cold war 44 what what how are you buddy just doing okay i'm still i still have caffeine going through me so i am just do this
0: still uh, looking forward to your 2 minutes of heaven with heather at some point tonight
1: well you know i'm not going to lie it's going to be two minutes of heaven for me for her i don't i don't know I'm mm. not sure i care no. anyway hmm. Anyway, as as we were saying last time, the um, the United States military was pressing FDR to get some inf- to get some uh, agreements out of Stalin. They wanted the uh, Eisenhower to be able to talk to the. Uh, uh, Soviet command. They wanted the lower ranks to be able to talk to each other, like maybe the people in the, Medi- the British in the Mediterranean uh, versus the Soviets in the Balkans. Sometimes they get a yes, sometimes they get a no, but what they always get is, we have to ask Marshal Stalin first. They were able to get an agreement on the bomb line, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the um, limitations of bombing so no one else gets killed by friendly fire, which, as Cam said last time, leads directly to the fucked upness that is the bombing of dresden.
0: Mm. Yeah, and and the bombing of dresden is something i don't know how aware people are of this just in general. It doesn't get the amount of uh, sort of media attention i think that H- hiroshima and nagasaki get uh, usually on the right. anniversary of hiroshima it sort of hits the media there's a lot of yeah, talk about it. Deal. I'm not sure the anniversary yeah. of Dresden uh, gets the same amount of attention. I certainly didn't see it come up this year on the anniversary, which was just uh, a couple of months ago. Um, but it 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 was pretty brutal. And um, we, we should talk about it and uh, get into some of the details. Just, I guess, to put into perspective what the Allies were doing, the Western Allies at the end of World War II. Yeah. We hear a lot about atrocities. We hear about the Japanese atrocities a lot. We hear about Nazi atrocities. We hear about the Red Army atrocities. You don't hear a lot about the Western Allies atrocities. And this is definitely up there and is still today considered a war crime by a lot of historians, academics and scholars and legal thinkers around the world.
1: Yeah so as the um as the Americans and the Russians are trying to determine what's going to be the bomb line what's the definition where's it going to be like you said on the last show the Americans are starting to get panicked because there are several important industrial uh targets that they want to go after they want to go after certain refineries to lower the uh, Germany's ability to produce military goods. So they, so they have this, um, worked out. But again, they don't know where they can bomb because they can't get the freaking Russians to agree to anything. Finally, Stalin steps in. They come up with the line. Dresden is back on the list along with, uh, Vienna, Leipzig, Zagreb. And so they, they know that they're going to move forward on this now. And again, they're trying to help the Soviet army move forward, um, more quickly by bombing the, the German resistance that's going to be in front of them. But again, um, and, and the Americans have, for the last, what, six months, they've been bombing during the day. The British have been bombing at night, but this is going to be a joint operation. They've got it all planned out. They just had to get all their ducks in a row uh, in, in the form of getting the Soviets to agree. So that's all been done. It's time to move forward on this bombing. and and. Good or bad, however you want to look at it. So far, Dresden has has escaped bombing, certainly any kind of massive bombing. There's a rumor there that Churchill's aunt lives or lived there or whatever. So supposedly this area was safe. But as we're going to find out, and as the uh, people in Dresden going to find out, this is not true. So the Americans have finally got everything into place, and it's time for them to move forward. And as we said on the last episode, they have several different reasons. Some... um out there in and, and, and the open and some of them behind the scenes reasons of why Dresden needs to be bombed yeah, or why the, they needed to be bombed.
0: The Dresdeners had a, a rumor that Churchill's aunt had once lived there. That's why it mm. wasn't being bombed. Um, there was also a British soldier who was a prisoner of war in Dresden, who said that the people of Dresden had believed that as long as the Luftwaffe didn't bomb Oxford, Dresden would be spared. Uh, but, of course, we, we? neither of okay. those neither of those rumours turned out <laughs> to be true. On the contrary, as you said at the end of the last episode, Churchill was actually eager to bomb the fuck out of everything because, in part, he wanted to demonstrate to the Russians the capabilities of Bomber Command. Uh, there was actually a memo issued to the Royal Air Force pilots prior to the attack on Dresden, which read, Intentions of the attack are to hit the enemy where it will feel it most, behind an already partially collapsed front, to prevent the use of the city in the way of further advance, and incidentally, to show the Russians when they arrive what Bomber Command can do.
1: So this isn't... One real enemy, one potential enemy.
0: Yeah, this isn't... You know, lefty uh, theory here that they wanted to show the Russians what they could do. This was actually contained within memos to the Air Force pilots before the attack.
1: Damn. Now th- there was, and I looked for it and I couldn't find it, but there was this um, well-written speech, because it came from Churchill, a very short speech that he gave to FDR a year or two ago, and he was basically saying, you know, war is total. We have to bomb their factories so they can't make anything. We have to bomb their ships so they can't come and attack us. And we have to bomb and kill their people, because they're the ones that sustain the war. If you get rid of the population, you get rid of the workers, the military will uh, suffer. You have to bomb their houses. That's where they live, because they can rest and get up the next day and work. And so we have to go after all of that. Uh, I can't remember if he was actually putting any kind of judgment on it. And again, I can't find the speech. But he was basically saying it has to be total war because you have to wipe out their ability to make war, which is wiping out the workers, the civilians, and where they live and rest at night. And this is uh, a prime example of that. And
0: that's what we refer today as terrorism. Good point. Well, we've touched on this before, I'm sure, in this show or the Bullshit Filter show. When... The 9-11 attackers attacked civilians in the Twin Towers. Hmm. We call it terrorism and a, and a heinous act, but uh, this is exactly what Churchill is saying. No, we're going to go and attack the civilians because they are supporting the war effort. And I'm sure in the minds of the 9-11 attackers and the... Saudi royal family that supported them <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and anyone else who supported them that's what people working in Wall Street are doing. They are yeah. uh, enabling, they are yeah. supporting the US military and the US corporations that help fund the military and support the military in other ways and support the political parties that increase military funding and, and create public assent for various military interventions around the world uh, so you you know, when we do it, it's justified. When the other side do it, it's terrorism.
1: Mm-hmm. That's what it means to be human. Yeah. So, um, now,
0: where was I up to? On the night of February 13th, only two days after the end of the Alta Conference, the Royal mm. Air Force Bomber Command executed the first night air raid on Dresden. Now, as I think I said towards the end of the last episode they were in a hurry because the red army was moving quite fast and so there was no time to fuck around if the, the longer they waited the, the the sooner the red army would interfere with the bomb line hitting dresden
1: yeah Exactly. So the f- and, and the and I'm sorry. I just wanted to, before the before um, February 13th. You know, um, the Americans told the the, the uh, Russians, "Look, this is coming. This is coming." Thank you for putting it on the list. We're going to get to it. And so on um, February 12th, General Dean told the Soviet general staff, "The attack is coming. I can't tell you exactly when because obviously security, but it is coming soon. Make sure your people are nowhere near Dresden because this is about to happen."
0: Yeah. So, uh, over three days, February 13th to February 15th, mm. the city known as the Florence on the Elbe, because it was beautiful, a lot of right. old old uh, Gothic architecture, was reduced to rubble, basically, by the yeah. Allied bombers. It was known as Operation Thunderclap. Um, which is usually what I call it when I after I have an Indian curry, right. but uh, different kind of thunderclap. Altogether thirteen hundred British and American bombers dropped more than three thousand tons of bombs, including Jeez. one thousand one hundred tons of incendiaries on the city.
1: Yeah. Now and, and they yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and their primary target was the inner city itself. We're going to get to uh, what's on the outside of this, but they were specifically going after the people, going after the homes, going for the inner city where the the heart, basically the heart of the city. That was their main goal.
0: Indeed. Now, an incendiary, if you aren't familiar with what that means, is... uh, Munition that's designed to start fires, basically. Um, there's a number of different kinds of incendiary, napalm, thermite, uh, magnesium powder, mm-hmm. uh, chlorine, trifluoride, and white phosphorus, uh, a.k.a. Willie Pete, as it was known uh, in, in Vietnam. Uh, And and in this case, they were dropping white phosphorus. Now, white phosphorus is horrible. Um, As anyone who's done chemistry knows, white phosphorus is extremely flammable and dangerous. Um, According to the British soldier who was a POW in Dresden at the time, he wrote in his memoirs later, as the incendiaries fell, the phosphorus clung to the bodies of those below turning them into human torches. The screaming of those who were being burned alive was added to the cries of those not yet hit. There was no need for flares to lead the second wave of bombers to their target as the whole city had become a gigantic torch. It must have been visible to the pilots from a 100 miles away. Dresden had no defences, no anti-aircraft guns, no searchlights, nothing. Now, white phosphorus, as I understand it, ignites when it comes into contact with oxygen. Mm. So, yeah, if it lands on your skin, it just bursts into flame. So, pretty fucking horrifying stuff. Yeah, The inner city, as you say, was completely destroyed. So, residential, hospitals, businesses... All of that kind of stuff. And this is what's known as area bombing or carpet bombing or saturation bombing. It's a kind of aerial bombardment that really is indiscriminate in what it targets. They just try and take out an entire city block or an entire city. As contrasted with precision bombing where you go after a specific target like maybe an empty Syrian Air Force base where they've been notified several hours earlier that you're going to target yeah. it, and they have the opportunity to get out of there, move everything, so no damage is done, and then they can just move back in later on.
1: Just Did we tell them, or did we tell Russia, and Russia told them?
0: Yeah, you told Russia who told Syria, obviously.
1: Jesus, okay. Moab.
0: Yeah, Moab. Damn. Um now, more than 75 the numbers are a little bit dicey here, but I think this is relatively reliable. The, more than 75,000 houses were destroyed, along with unique um, Baroque and Gothic architecture that had survived for centuries. Um, now, I did read one report that the Allies knew that a bomb shelter or a cellar, that people might go and hide in when they heard the attack coming, would only provide protection for about three hours before it would become unbearably hot Mm -hmm. and the people would need to come back outside. So they timed their second wave of bombs precisely three hours after the first batch. So people would go down into bomb shelters, come back out, and then you'd hit them with... The second wave of bombing.
1: Yeah. And what I had read, I'm sure the, the statistics vary, but 25,000 people were killed, I think, on the first night. Um, and, and I guess it really doesn't matter um, whether they died from traditional bombs or they died from uh, being burned alive, uh, obviously, in the resulting firestorm. But again, just, just the entire heart of the city was nothing but leveled raised to the ground and no one, no one survived as far as we can tell.
0: Yeah. The death toll has been highly disputed ever since and still is. And I'll drill down into some of that in a second, but yeah. Um, Now there's also reports that the allied bombers would drop air bombs that would explode first to blow off roof tiles Ah. so the white phosphorus would be able to come in through the roofs into the houses, into the interior of the buildings Uh, and also they would blow out the windows to allow Mm -hmm. greater ventilation to stoke the flames caused by the white phosphorus Um, People were dying from the lack of oxygen as the firestorm basically sucked all of the oxygen out of the atmosphere. So if you weren't destroyed by a direct hit or by the fire, you were being suffocated from the lack of oxygen. One witness described seeing people suddenly falling dead as if they'd been shot, but later she found out that they were just dropping dead from lack of oxygen. Some people jumped into huge water tanks, hoping to escape the heat, only to find that the water inside was boiling. Oh, God. White phosphorus, I think, burns can burn anyway up to 1,500 degrees Celsius,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is uh, hot. Very fucking hot. Yeah. Imagine jumping into boiling water. No, I- now, in March of 1945, a few weeks after the attacks the Nazis uh, put out statements in the press publishing a casualty figure of 200,000 people. Mm -hmm. Now, this partly apparently came from a guy called Eberhard Matez, who was um, a lieutenant colonel and general staff officer in Dresden at the time of the bombing. It was his job to determine the number of victims. According to his data, 35,000 corpses were totally identified, another 50,000 were partially identified, and 168,000 could no longer be identified. So he counted 253,000 dead. But an official German report in 2010, put together by a group of historians over about five or six years calculated the official death toll as somewhere between 18 and Mm -hmm. 25,000. The larger number has often been claimed as being Nazi propaganda. But it's hard to really believe that this city had a population of 750,000 people, plus at the time, hundreds of thousands of refugees were there because everywhere else had been bombed. It was reduced to rubble plenty of photographs out there if you want to go looking. Some of them are quite gruesome of victims and corpses, but you can see the entire city was laid to rubble. Hard to imagine that only 25,000 people died out of that, particularly with white phosphorus and everything just being on fire. But those are the official numbers and they're apparently credible. I just, it boggles the mind. The, um, uh, in the last months of the war, leading, but before the bombing, Dresden was known as De Lagerstadt, uh which apparently means a hospital town, or Fluchtlingstadt, which is mm-hmm. the city of the refugees. So this is mm. what the Allies decided to wipe out, the hospital town, which was the city of refugees. Now, in 1953, the U.S. Air Force put out a report that defended the bombing. They said it was a strategic target. That it had uh, major rail transport and communication centres there, housed 110 factories and had 50,000 workers supporting the German war effort. But there are critics like Norman Stone, who's a professor of modern history at Oxford, who said there was no heavy industry, no major communication centres and no military activity at all in Dresden. So there's been a lot of debate, as I said, about this ever since
1: and as far as those industrial centers on the outside of the city those were barely touched it did not take the nazi military um elites to get production going again soon after Uh, uh, except for obviously there's very few people to work in the factories, but those factories are still standing there. They're still ready to produce whatever, uh, the German army needs. Um, but obviously at this point there's far fewer workers. And so you have to ask yourselves, what were the real targets, the people or the, the factories, the ability to produce war goods?
0: Mm. Well, we have evidence. To help us answer that question uh, to a degree anyway. Now, people may be thinking, well, Hitler bombed London, so this is just payback for that. Mm. However, the first intentional area bombing of civilians in the Second World War took place at Mönchengladbach on the 11th of May 1940 at Churchill's orders the day after he became prime minister. And four months mm. before the Luftwaffe began its blitz on British yeah. cities,
1: um, now, r- r- just throwing it out real quick um during the Battle of Britain, the very first um civilian bombing was a mistake uh two pilots uh messed up where they were supposed to go, so they just dropped their bombs and turned around and that's when kind of it got started um going a lot larger than that, obviously, but you're right. Churchill was the first to one because he was trying to wreak havoc, create terror for the Germans to let them know that they were not completely safe, that Hitler was not the perfect leader, that they were vulnerable to. But yeah, so Churchill did it then. He's certainly um, okay with it now. And the results are just for, for obviously for everybody, not just one side, but the results are just ghastly.
0: Uh, Hitler's first cruise missile, the V1, was named Virgeltungswaffe. Do you know what that means? Which
1: means, means, believe it or not, no. Vengeance. Mm.
0: And apparently he named it that because of the area bombing that Churchill had carried out in May of 1940. It was their vengeance bomb. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, as you said, uh, the outlying industrial areas of Dresden weren't even really destroyed, so the Nazis were able to restore military production there quite quickly. Now, two weeks after the bombing, Sir Arthur Harris, a.k.a. Bomber Harris, as he's mm-hmm. best known to history, the head of the RAF's Bomber Command, had gone to dinner at Churchill's country residence, Chequers. Um, John Colville, who was Churchill's private secretary, had asked Harris about the bombing of Dresden Uh, before the PM came down for dinner. He said to Harris what the effect of the bombing on Dresden had been, and Harris's reply was, Dresden? There is no such place as Dresden.
1: Shit. Yeah, Yeah, he was a hard ass.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, Colville also wrote that Churchill used the bombings to shatter civilian morale. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, a couple of weeks later, Churchill wrote a memo to the British Air Force. And here's the quote from the memo. I think I may have used this earlier on in the series, but I'll use it again. Churchill mode. Charles. Bulldog. It seems to me that the moment has come when the question of the so-called area bombing of German cities should be reviewed from the point of view of our own interests. If we come into control of an entirely ruined land, there will be a great shortage of accommodation for ourselves and our allies, and we shall be unable to get housing materials out of Germany for our own needs, because some temporary provision would have to be made for the Germans themselves. We must see to it that our attacks do not do not do more harm to ourselves in the long run, than they do to the enemy's immediate war effort. Mm. So to translate, he's basically saying, I'm not sure about this area bombing. Not because we're killing civilians. (laughs) Don't have a problem with that aspect. It's because we're destroying the houses and we're going to need the houses when we move there and the building materials that we want to take out of Germany... To rebuild our country, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they might be using to rebuild Germany, and uh, so that was his concern—not the loss of civilian lives, not the, the the morality of deliberately attacking civilians to create terror, right? But nice. because practical matters for practical yeah. reasons,
1: yeah, selfish practical reasons.
0: And again, listen to me, folks. That. Is what the definition of terrorism is. Look it up. The definition of terrorism today is to deliberately attack civilians with an agenda to create political or social or military change. Exactly what Churchill's talking about, to shatter civilian morale. And by doing that, create political, military or social change to some degree. So... This is a Christian nation in the mid-20th century deliberately targeting a million civilians with a terror campaign. Now, you might again say, well, yes, they were in a war and, and the, the war was horrible. Yeah, of course. But again, the, the 9-11 terrorists can say exactly the same thing. There may have not been an official official Ye old style war against the US, but as right. th- from their perspective, the US has been, yeah. you know, supporting proxy wars in the Middle East for decades. Go listen to the bullshit filter if you want to know more about the history behind that. Um, the US overthrew the government of Iran. The US overthrew, well, you know, helped keep Israel supported with military. They were mm-hmm. supporting the Saudis. They were We're fighting in Lebanon. Well, I'm talking about the Middle East and Muslim-controlled territories primarily. So um, that's a war. Whether you think it's a traditional war or a non-traditional war, it's a war. So it's it's a bit difficult to criticise one group for targeting civilians when your own countries have a long track record of targeting civilians. Now... You might be able to say, well, yes, but the Geneva Convention wasn't signed until 1949 that made it illegal under international law to deliberately target civilians. That's true, but I'm not talking about legalities here. I'm talking about morality. I'm talking about ethics right. and morality and pointing out that your revered Winston Churchill and your revered Franklin Delano Roosevelt and your revered Ike. Eisenhower and General George Marshall and Air Marshal Brooks and all of these guys, Bomber Harris, had no qualms at all about deliberately targeting a million civilians with white phosphorus bombing.
1: Yeah. And here's the great ironic part of that. So the bombing takes place in mid-February. The Soviets don't even show up in the area until May 8th. So, obviously, it wasn't something they had to bomb real quick because the, uh, the Soviet troops were coming and they wanted to make it easier on them. These guys don't show up for a couple of months afterwards. And May 8th, obviously, you no, know, whatever just happens to be the day that Germany capitulated on the Western Front. So, um, take all that information what you will, but obviously, in times of war, there's just a complete breakdown of morals, of laws, of, of everything. On, on all sides, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon.
0: Well, keep in mind that the bomb line was 60 kilometers away, so uh, you know, it, it was the Red Army was marching into enemy controlled enemy territory and enemy controlled territory, mm-hmm. so it obviously took them quite a while to get that 60 kilometers. And by the way, no hurry to get to Dresden when it has had the shit fucking bombed out of it. Yeah, no, no point what? in being there in the first place, really
1: exactly and of course j- just just to um for conversation pieces at your next party or whatever um <laughs> the uh soviets were able to reach dresden because of the uh the blue wonder a 19th century metal bridge that just somehow happened to survive the bombing. And it also survived the Nazis' own attempts to blow it up so the USSR couldn't use it. So again, this stout metal German bridge, obviously German engineering, German steel, uh, it survived the bombing, it survived the, the uh, um, sabotage from the Germans, and that's what the Soviets used to cross into to witness firsthand the ability of the Western powers, uh, ability to bomb a city.
0: Now, I mentioned uh, Churchill's memo earlier. Bomber Harris wrote a reply to that memo where he said he Mm -hmm. did not regard the whole of the remaining cities of Germany as worth the bones of a single British grenadier. Damn. Now, that British prisoner of war I mentioned earlier, Victor Gregg, he believed that the bombing of Dresden was a war crime. He was actually Mm. ordered to help clear up the uh, carnage afterwards um Jeez. and in a 2014 bbc interview he talked about the hunt for red october no hunt for survivors uh, that was another right. thing he was involved in that's uh, later yeah hunt for survivors after the firestorm um, he said there was this one incident where he, it took his team seven hours to get into an air raid shelter that had a thousand people in it. When they got inside, they found no survivors. They didn't even find corpses. They just found a greeny brown liquid with bones sticking out of it.
1: Jeez. Yeah. They, I guess those underground shutters became de facto ovens
0: Yeah. the heat. All the people Jeez. had melted. Whew. Now, Man. Uh, in areas a little bit further from the town center, there were just thousands and thousands of adult bodies shriveled to three feet in length Damn. because of the extreme heat. Children under the age of three had just been vaporized, apparently. Of course, this wasn't the first time a German city had been firebombed either. Operation Gomorrah in July the previous year had seen Hamburg completely torched. In that case, there were 9,000 tons of explosives and incendiaries that had flattened the city center. And uh, the death toll there was thirty-seven thousand people. Um, by comparison, the uh, atom bomb that they dropped on Hiroshima, I think, killed forty thousand people on the first day. There was another couple of hundred thousand people that died afterwards as a result of radiation all right. and all that kind of stuff. But so these these were still massive air firebombing attacks. Now, chief of the Air staff, Charles, Charles Portal, British uh, chief of the air staff, had calculated that bombing civilians could kill 900,000 people in 18 months, seriously injure a million more, destroy 6 million homes and de-house 25 million, deliberately creating a humanitarian crisis in Germany that he believed would speed up the war. So this was deliberate strategy on behalf of the British to target millions of civilians. But of course, they didn't say that publicly. Uh, and you have to you have to realize the differential between what military and political leaders say to the public. And what they say privately to each other. And that surely is as true today as it was back then. Um, Now, in November 1941, uh, Bomber Harris said, this is in 1941, Mm -hmm. Bomber Harris said he had been intentionally bombing civilians for a year at that stage. Obviously, May 1940, we talked about, was the first uh, area bombing Churchill ordered. Um, right. In a statement Harris made, he said, I mention this because for a long time, the government, for excellent reasons, has preferred the world to think that we still held some scruples and attacked only what the humanitarians are pleased to call military targets. I can assure you, gentlemen, that we tolerate no scruples. God.
1: Yeah. I mean, do you do you need a person like that when you are in a war and the other side is much more developed? Uh, they're much more ready. They've geared, you know, because Hitler has has been gearing up for war from day one. And so, when when you're barely hanging on and everybody else around you has been defeated, can you use that as an excuse to say? This is total war. Everybody else, all my allies are gone. It's just me and they're focusing on me. I should be able to do whatever I can possibly do to survive, much less thinking about winning sometime down the road. I think you
0: can make that argument. But if just you be do, but if you yeah. do make mm-hmm. that argument, you have to also say the 9-11 terrorists were completely morally justified in what they did.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Well, America will never.
0: You can't. This is my position. You can't have it both ways. You can't say right. when when we're up against the wall, it's okay for us to deliberately target civilians. Mm-hmm. But when the other guys are up against the wall, it's not okay for them to do that. And it's it's uh, you know it's yeah. it's terrorism. It's a war crime. It's or terrorism whatever.
1: when they do it. You know, you, yeah. you, you it's c- noble defiance. When you we do
0: can't it. have it both ways. It's it's got to be yeah. one or the other. Yeah. now uh, la, la, la just to finish up this whole thing uh, back to Bomber Harris in an interview in 1977
1: oh god he softened up I just know what he softened up
0: he said he would do it all over again oh. um, <laughs> yeah, soft, I was wrong he softened up <laughs> yeah. I was wrong That's gonna now Freeman Dyson Uh, One of the world's most eminent physicists worked at Bomber Command from 1943 to 1945. Still alive today. I think he's about 93, Mm. Freeman Dyson. Um, He said the bombing of Dresden eroded his own moral beliefs until he had no moral position at all. He was going to write about it, but then found that another Prisoner of war who was in Dresden at the time of the bombing wrote about it, and that was Kurt Vonnegut, American novelist. Mm. Like uh, Victor Gregg, I mentioned earlier, Vonnegut was a POW in Dresden the night of the bombing. And wow. of course, quite famously, he wrote a book about it, Slaughterhouse Five, which I read a couple of years ago on the recommendation of Tony Coniston and uh fascinating, fucking amazing 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 book deserves all of the hype that surrounds it he claimed that he that only one person in the world derived any benefit from the bombing of dresden and that was him because he wrote a famous book about it and it paid in two oh. or three dollars for every person killed Jeez. Vonnegut, again, he was there, believed that the death toll was higher than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Another guy who was a prisoner with Vonnegut, Gifford B. Doxy, who later became a professor of history at a higher university, agreed with Vonnegut on the size of the death toll. Um... And uh, yeah, this gets back to this debate about how many people really died in the official numbers and all of that. These guys were there, but of course, you know, they, they weren't walking around doing a mathematical statistical analysis of how many people died, but that was their impression. Now, of course, Germany's bombing bombing of British cities was equally abhorrent. Uh, Germany dropped 35,000 tons of bombs on Britain uh, between 1940 and 1941, killing... Uh, around about 39,000 people. Mm. The UK and the USA dropped a combined 1.9 million tonnes of bombs on Germany over seven years. Wow. So I guess the question is, should Churchill, Roosevelt and bomber Harris have been tried at Nuremberg for war crimes? And again, a lot of historians and academics uh, around the world, including in the U.S., the U.K., and Germany, believe that is the case. They shouldn't have gotten off scot-free. Um, what do you think?
1: Jeez. Uh, that's. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you're just in a total war and uh, the, the, the winning side doesn't get tried. That's what, it, I, that, that's what it comes down to. You win. It's not, it's not a question. It's not an option. You're writing the rules.
0: Mm. Which they did. And the Geneva Convention in 1949, um, based on the, the previous uh, conventions that we had, but the Geneva Convention specifically made it illegal under international law to target civilians during war. Of course, it still happens and very little gets done about it um but uh at least technically
1: at least it's on the books it's on the
0: books yeah what hap
1: what happens if your president bombs a semi-military target of a country you are technically not at war with and he doesn't ask congress (laughs) yeah i guess we'll find out i guess we'll find out um,
0: of yeah. course, what happens today is whenever civilians are killed, whichever side killed them, just says, oh, they were using them as civilian shields. Right. And yeah. everyone goes, oh, okay. I mean, how do you yeah. disprove that? Well, the UN will go in and do an investigation, but that'll take three years, and by that stage, everyone's moved on. No one just cares anymore, so. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Are we done with Dresden? Yes, That's we are done
0: with Dresden. Okay.
1: I, I, there was one. I was looking back at my notes during the break, and I, I just thought it was interesting when you were talking about Air Marshal Sergey Kudiakov, I don't know how to say his name. The, the one guy who ends up, I think, in his forties, ending, and up getting shot in April 1950. Um, uh He was accused of being the spy, like you said, since age 16, but he was nothing more than a small piece of the puzzle of a much bigger case about General Zhukov. I didn't know if he wanted to go into that or go into it later, but really what it comes down to is, you know, 1937, um, 38, 36, where Stalin has his purges. So we're getting to near the end of the war. There's a bunch of new Soviet commanders who've come up through the ranks, obviously through death and through the purges these guys are being promoted so maybe they're not quite as good military leaders as they are politically reliable but with the war they're getting better at it but they're getting a little cocky and stalin who is obviously getting older needs to teach them a lesson so there are people who are um taken out and shot obviously after a show trial because of uh, maybe they have displeased stalin but it's also to serve a larger purpose which is to show these younger bucks who's still the man in charge and so even zhukov himself is going to be accused and put on trial. Uh, he's going to survive um, uh, his uh, pr- his own trial. But again, Stalin is cracking the whip, letting them know uh, who's in charge. Did you read that quote? Uh, we were being very cynical, and uh, not cynical, we were being very uh, realistic in a depressing way when we were talking about Dresden. Did you read the quote about what Stalin made on February 8th at a dinner when he was talking about the soldiers? I mean, you want to talk about some hardcore... Realism, and this is coming from the man who lost twenty million of his own people.
0: Uh, remind me.
1: Uh, they're at the dinner at the Yusupov Palace, where Stalin uh, Stalin proposes a toast to those of whom we oh, all yeah. look in war for our security. Did you say something?
0: Sorry, I said, oh yeah, yeah. I just remembered the quote. Okay. Yeah, yeah, keep going.
1: Okay, I, I okay, the. To those of whom we all look in war for our security, those to wh- of whom our very security depends, the heroes of all the women and the center of all the things, as long as hostilities continue, only to be forgotten and lapse into oblivion as soon as hostilities cease, our soldiers. So it's like. Thanks a lot for when we need you, when our lives are in danger, when our state is in danger, when our interest in, is in danger. You're the hero of all the women and children protecting everything that makes our country our country, our culture. But as soon as war is over with, eh, not so much. We forget you.
0: And that, that speech by Stalin was actually adopted as official policy by uh, U.S. Congress.
1: <laughs> Pretty much, the Republicans anyway. But yes. Yeah,
0: so, uh, let's go back in time a couple of days. February 5th, Joe got a letter from Frank.
1: He uh, was giddy, giddy.
0: And he couldn't wait for his official interpreter to come, so he called in Gromikio and said, Interpret this. He said, interpret this. Pl- please. Please. But he said it in Russian, not in heavily accented English, because if it was the case, he could interpret it himself.
1: He could not wait. He was so excited.
0: Gromikio told him that uh, that uh, Roosevelt was prepared to accommodate the Soviets' claims to the southern Sakhalin and the Kuril Islands. Mm-hmm. Remember, we talked about these a few episodes ago. These are these areas that are close to Japan where the Russians had ports that were being threatened by the Japanese, and were, in effect, useless. Right. You wanted to make a joke about Sakhalin and Kuril, I think, based on your Facebook comments this morning?
1: <laughs> no, I'm sitting there doing the notes, looking over my notes for the show, and we are going to say Sakhalin, Southern Sakhalin, and Kuril, it's Kuril Island, so many times in this next episode, probably the one after that, we should give them nicknames like we've done before. So I was just going to call it Southern Sak. But know that I'm talking about southern Sakhalin islands just because we're going to say them so many times.
0: Just the Sosaks. The Sosaks. The, the Sosaks. Um, yeah, now, Stalin said to Gromiko, this is an important letter. The Americans mm. recognize the justice of our position on Sakhalin and the Kurils. Now, in return, they will try to insist on participation in the war on Japan. But that's another question altogether. Tell me, what do you think of Roosevelt? Is he clever? And Gromyko replied, Comrade Stalin, Roosevelt is a highly intelligent, very capable man. Just the fact that he got himself elected president for a third time and then a fourth term speaks for itself. Of course, he was helped by the international situation, and a lot of it was also due to the capable job the Democrats did in popularizing his name. But his talks on the radio, his fireside chats, also made big impact on millions of Americans. That was very smart of him, said Stalin. Yes, he got everything right i sound like I sound like a bad k g b a- agent on archer <laughs> that's That's my Russian accent. <laughs>
1: But Stalin had a specific smile, according to Gromyko, Stalin had a specific smile of satisfaction on his face, obviously um, getting this letter from uh, from FDR. So it is possible to get satisfaction, despite what the, the Rolling Stones say. Now, letting everybody know the reason Stalin is excited is because this is the first official... That's the key word here, recognition of his political conditions that he put to the Americans, which were, quite frankly, his price for coming in and helping out fight against uh, Japan in the the Pacific. Uh, So Stalin was basically happy that the U.S. was recognizing certain historical considerations after all in 1905 president Teddy Roosevelt um, negotiated the treaty of Portsmouth between uh, Russia and Japan they were having a year a war for about a year year and a half Uh, Japan humiliates the Russian Empire they destroy two of their uh, two two naval forces Teddy uh, gets a Nobel Peace Prize out of it so he's happy but pretty much no one else is happy and so there are, there are certain things that, are, that have happened in the past. And I find this interesting, Cam, and I'll, I'll just say this real quick and I'll stop because I don't want to go too far. When I was taught American history in high school in the 11th grade, we were taught, we were specifically told that Stalin used the fact that America was bogged down in the war and that Japan uh, was powerless to do anything about it, that the Soviet Union went in and took the Sacred Sack, Southern Sakhalin, and Kuril Islands, uh, because no one could stop them. But when you get into the background of it, they were simply taking back territory that had been theirs, that they had lost to Japan, semi recently, in very humiliating ways. So again, just the spin that you get in the, in, in your basic high school classes, just, doesn't come anywhere close to what the truth really is and i just found it really fascinating that stalin once again had justifiable reasons for wanting these uh wanting these territories and wanting them back
0: well and and on top of that roosevelt had agreed for them to take that <laughs> it's not like they snuck in when no one was looking exactly it was a it deal it was a deal you deal. get this yeah. and in return we, you'll get involved in the war in japan with us I mean, to be fair to your history teachers and the people who wrote your textbooks, maybe a lot of this wasn't known at the time because you know you obviously went to high school in the fifties, just after this happened. So, no, but it it does. It takes decades and decades for these facts to get to end up in the curriculum, and people get taught spurious things based on media reports or propaganda of the day and it's really only often 50 or 60 years after events happen that yeah. we find out what actually happened it just takes time for all of the real data to 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 emerge out of the fucking morass of propaganda bullshit. that usually surrounds the stuff yeah the bullshit that's right all right um I think we'll leave it there and pick up the discussion of the Sakhalin and Kurile Islands and the war on Japan in the next episode, in episode 45. Aye. Aye. We're out. Aight. Leave us a review on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook. Uh, Follow me, Cameron Riley, on Twitter, and Ray on Twitter, World War II, pod pod something. Podcaster. WW2 podcast, I think, yeah. Uh, send us emails, leave us comments. Uh, tell your friends. Love us like, yeah, just love us. that's all we wanted to say.
1: <laughs> An iron curtain has descended across the continent.